Dearest Society, Within the limited capacities of this audio recording, I leave to you a record of my time amongst the underclass. For many years, I have walked the borders of the civilized world and acted as an observer and occasional participant to the myriad of peculiar activities that exist just beyond the places of our comfort. Trained as I have been in the classical forms of academia to appreciate the reverent tomes of canonical literature, I can assure you that I am a judge both worthy and wise. And with that, I deliver to you my thesis. There is more to our culture than we are ready to admit. We freely accept into our vision of the arts the written word in prose and poetry. We gape over paintings both tactile and digital. We've accepted television and the moving picture as master mediums of composite visual and narrative design. And yet, there are art forms that we overlook, that we take for granted as easily as we once dismissed the Punch and Judy puppet theater, the carnival of old, or the classic Wild West show. Well, these falsified coaches and staged Indian attacks still exist, tucked covertly behind our backs, away from prying eyes who would know our true but secret pleasures, beloved by millions, and yet never acknowledged, never recognized for their efforts. These pariah arts have been the subject of my study for years. They are the books you'd never read on a bus, and the television shows you'd never click a like button for. With my associate. Thank you. Hello. I have lived amongst these forgotten mediums, and we have sampled what they have to offer. To you, the listener, the true judge of what is or is not art, what belongs or doesn't belong in our cultural consciousness, I make you this promise of these lost mediums. We will redeem them. We are the Fringe Scholars! Episode 3, Wrestling in Japan. Good to be back. It is wonderful to be back. It's so good. Kelly, how are you doing? I'm doing I'm doing really good. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about this one. Uh, because, of course, we're back in my comfort zone. And, um, yeah, and, and yeah, this, this topic is, is quite exciting. Today, what we're going to be talking about is uh, a little something different than... Uh, than the conventional wrestling that we get in North America. Today, we go to the land of the rising sun and talk about, what do you, what do you call it over there? It's... Uh, Resu? Is it, is it puro resu? Puro resu. 
I feel racist when I say that. I think that's, I'm, I mean, okay, first of all, before I get into this. Um, I don't about, want to be racist. No, no. I mean, and I mean, we're just, you know, clueless North Americans <laughs> stumbling around with I Japanese just, words, you know, so we're not being racist. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, but okay, you know, we'll talk about that later. Go on. Sorry, okay. you were going to say? Um. I just want to apologize beforehand to any anybody listening from the ProWrestlingOnly.com message board where I, I post and where I, I posted the um, Fringe Scholars thread because there's several uh, very hardcore Japanese wrestling fans on that site. And so I just want to apologize beforehand if I totally uh, misconstrue, you know, <laughs> the history of Japanese wrestling and, and, um, and basically what Japanese wrestling is because I will be you know, <laughs> I make no apology. Yeah, no. See, you have nothing, right? I know. Like, I have my reputation as a. I've got nothing to be ashamed of. Whatever. Yeah. What? Exactly. No, they I would make their own podcast. <laughs> yeah. No. No. I mean, yeah, there isn't actually, as far as I know, any Japanese wrestling podcasts out there, but there must be. But anyway, um, yeah, they're a very. Uh, gobs. They're a very. Um, uh, you know, they, they take pride in their knowledge of Japanese wrestling. So, uh, and, and I'm really actually, you know, my knowledge of Japanese wrestling compared to theirs is minuscule, but, uh, it's something you said, I, you know what, Kelly? I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Yeah. People that gain obsessive amounts of, of information about specific isolated things are what frighten people away from these things in the first place. It is yeah. it is the extreme fans that push all these different things that, that we want to expose during the Fringe Scholars, all these things that we want to talk about. It's the extreme fans that push that down into the darkness and terrify people of it, right? So when people look at Japanese wrestling and then they look at the Japanese wrestling fans and they go, oh my God, I don't, I don't want to go near that, right? <laughs> all these <laughs> fans that are, that are, you know, attacking helpless podcasters. Yeah. Well, it's it's Their it's in, in the sort of higher hierarchy of of wrestling fandom, uh, Japanese wrestling. Getting into Japanese wrestling is is it's up there. It's 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 maybe near the top of uh, where you can, as far as you can possibly go as a wrestling fan. In terms of intensity. And, and yeah, yeah, it's 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 for when you've exhausted your every uh, avenue of of American wrestling and and you you. You move on up. We'll have to treat it with some respect. Kelly, take us to Japan. I will. Well, yes, I mean, this is a wrestling podcast, and, you know, you can talk about WWE every day, any day. Um, it's time to sort of broaden our, our horizons and, and go into something different. Um, like I said before, Jap Japanese wrestling in North America is, is sort of the higher level. It is the... the you know the the area you you get into when you're a really serious committed wrestling fan. Um, it has an interesting history, uh, like um, wrestling itself does. Uh, I guess to begin, I guess now, is this going to be actually interesting, or is this going to be Kelly interesting? Um, I think it's going to be interesting. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> if it isn't, well, then I'll I'll, I'll stop you. Yeah. I'm not in this episode, so. I'm yeah, sorry. I think it's interesting. It, it's interesting. The history of Japanese wrestling. 
So I guess I'll, uh, we'll look at um, sort of the history um, in a generalized way. I mean, it's so vast that I can't go too deep into any one area. And then, you know, I want to talk about sort of the differences between North American wrestling and Japanese wrestling, which is something that makes Japanese wrestling stand out from North America, of course. And um, at the end, there's uh, two matches that I sort of picked out um, to examine, two Japanese wrestling matches, and Moss has uh, watched, I watched them. I watched them. They're great. They're so good. Yeah. So we'll get into that. And Can we just get through the history part? Yes. So get some good stuff? Okay. So uh, basically, to start, I guess, I, I got to start with a man named Sorokichi Matsuda. How do you feel about that pronunciation? I think I nailed that pronunciation. I know I nailed the Matsuda part. Okay. I think it's Sorokichi. Anyway, Sorokichi Matsuda was a sumo wrestler. And in Japan, of course, sumo wrestling is, you know, the ultimate sport, the most popular and the most, you know, historical sport they have there. Um, and Japanese culture has also got, uh, you know, heavy into martial arts, judo and such. And so anyway, Sorokichi... Uh, came to America in the 1880s when professional wrestling was first taking off in in, in a very um, uh, embryonic phase at the beginning. Anyways, it was centered. A lot of it was centered in New York City, where um, you know culture sort of uh, begins and and comes from in uh, in so many different ways. And Sorokichi came to New York. Um, I guess. I, uh, in, a, in a desire to make some money, probably. And he fell in with um, the wrestlers that were wrestling in New York City at that time. And in particular, the top guy, the top American in New York at that time, was a man named William Muldoon, who is kind of looked at as the first famous professional wrestler. I, mean, I wouldn't say the first professional wrestler, but the first man to become famous for being a professional wrestler. He was uh, a police officer um, also at the same time. And he wrestled. There are a lot of these matches were basically um, held ex exclusively for gambling purposes. Um, and they'd be held in, in, in like basements of bars and stuff. Um, some were eventually, you know, they, they expanded to where they were selling tickets and stuff. But still, there was heavily gambling, heavy gambling involved uh, behind it all. And I, I, you know, the history of wrestling is, is, is a big, long story, so I won't get into that. And eventually we'll probably talk about it. But anyway, needless to say, the early history of wrestling was all about um, sort of serving the interests of gamblers, as was a lot of uh, professional sports hmm. uh, at, in the early days, like baseball and boxing, of course, and horse mm -hmm. racing. And so um, Matsuda came to America, and he, you know, he was involved in a lot of uh, matches in New York, but he also traveled around the country. Uh, Cleveland, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Chicago, and he wrestled Muldoon, and he was kind of, he got a lot of attention because he was Japanese, and at that time it was, you know, a, a, you know, rare for contact between the cultures, right, before, mm -hmm. of course, air travel and, and all that, so he was, uh, there was a lot uh, wrote of him in the papers, um, but his story was kind of tragic because he died in uh, 1891 when he was only 32. Um, he was broke at the time of his death, you know. Mm. Um, he tried to bring American wrestling to Japan, but it didn't take hold. And he, yeah, he, his life kind of ended in, in, in tragedy, unfortunately. 
And so he is he's looked at as the first uh, Japanese professional wrestler. And in the years before World War II, um, many individuals tried to to um, bring uh, wrestling, pro wrestling to Japan, but it just never took for whatever reason. Um, so it, our story will now go forward to post-World War II. And this is sort of, I guess you would call the the real beginning of professional wrestling in Japan when it finally uh, took hold. Time, the timing was kind of right for professional wrestling to succeed because the initial um, sort of big story or big match that that sort of saw wrestling take off in Japan was centered around two huge hulking. Uh, individuals who were billed as Americans, but were actually from Canada, um, <laughs> Hamilton, and you know that, that's sort of, sort of common in the history of wrestling that you know these uh, uh, foreign menaces are often Canadian. It's kind of funny. <laughs> uh, Hans Schmidt is another one. The first uh, German Nazi heel uh, from the 1950s was actually uh, uh, French Canadian. But anyway, <laughs> that's a degree. Uh, so these these two guys were the Sharp brothers. Uh, and like I said, they were from Hamilton, but they were billed as Americans and they were, you know, big guys, uh, like six foot five, six foot six sort of guys. And so they, they towered over um, most Japanese. And the man, the Japanese wrestler that they challenged is a man named Ricky Dozen. Mm-hmm. That was his Ricky, uh, wrestling name. And unknown to the Japanese public at the time, Ricky Dozen was actually Korean. So now we have this confrontation that is totally false. It's not America versus Japan. It's it's Ontario versus uh, South Korea. <laughs> but anyway, so it's it's fitting for that because that's wrestling in a nutshell. There, all you know, all bullshit. And mm-hmm. anyway, so that 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 confrontation, um, uh, and and Ricky Dozen especially. Uh, really took off. He was a former sumo wrestler too. Um, he, for whatever reason, really the public just embraced him at that time. He was looked at as, you know, the, the conquering hero that stood up for Japan and, and rescued Japan's honor um, when they needed it most after uh, World War II had ended and defeated, you know, the American invaders um, like the, uh, in real life, the Japanese couldn't do. So, from that beginning, you know, uh, wrestling from there became very popular in Japan. Uh, is this coincided with the rise of television in Japan, which helped, of course, popularize it. Um, at the same time in America and Canada, television uh, and wrestling had this partnership that really, you know, took off. And uh, wrestling in the 50s became very popular because mm-hmm. it was one of the early TV programs. Um, it was on all the time. And the same thing happened in Japan. Um, but in Japan, it became even more popular on te- television than it did in the States or in Canada, to the point where when Ricky Dozen wrestled um, the famous American wrestler Luthez, who was the basically the world champion of America at that time, the NWA mm-hmm. champion, that match garnered like uh, what would be you know like ratings, tel- TV ratings that would be record setting, right? That'd be mm-hmm. you know the most watched program in Japanese history up to that point was that match between Ricky Dozen and Luthez. Yeah. And so it, it it really exploded in popularity, and Ricky Dozen is kind of we talked about El Santo. Ricky Dozen is is in many ways the Japanese equivalent of El Santo. 
um, without the impressive movie resume. Um, but as far as being like such an icon and just, you know, the symbol of Japanese wrestling and someone that everybody knew, you know, even if you're not, a, you weren't a wrestling fan, you knew who Ricky Dotson was, right? He was world famous or Japanese famous world. Of, mm-hmm. yeah, Japanese, Japan wide famous. And so he, um, was also basically, I believe, sort of the promoter behind uh, the top Japanese um, group at that time, the Japanese Wrestling Association. Anyway, um, throughout the history of Japanese wrestling, there's been ties between the Japanese uh, promotions and the Yakuza, which is the Japanese mafia, um, basically. And in in the early 1960s, in 1963, uh, Ricky Dozen was, you know, Getting up there, uh, he'd been wrestling for a good probably 10 to 12, yeah, more than 12 years at that point. Um, and he was, you know, known for being a heavy drinker and a gambler and all that. And he owned a bar, and he ran afoul of the Yakuza. And one night he was stabbed in the in the bathroom of this bar oh. with a knife that had been soaked in urine. Oh. Um, yeah, uh, which was, I guess, a common way for um, Yakuza to... to um, murder people and it's of course a very horrible way to die was it okay so wait was it did he die from the from being stabbed with a knife or did he die from from having urine inside of exactly he died from the infection from the, good lord yeah so i think it was about a week later or five days or so after the stabbing that he died but the fallout from that was huge um it was a big scandal um in japan because it was revealed after he died that Ricky Dozen had these ties to the Yakuza. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if that's when his Korean heritage also emerged. It may have been. Uh, as a way to discredit him. Yeah. So, and as a, because Ricky Dozen was the icon of Japanese wrestling, Japanese wrestling as a whole was tainted mm-hmm. um, by the scandal. And at for a brief period of a year or so, it looked like, you know, Japanese wrestling was in, or wrestling in Japan, I should say, um, was in trouble. And, you know, because their top star was dead and there was this taint of scandal. But fortunately for Japan, two men had been, uh, they had been uh, groomed in the preceding years before um, Ricky Dozen's death. And they would take Japan into the next era of, of wrestling, the next level of popularity or era of popularity. And the, the first one, is um, a man whose wrestling name is Antonio Inoki, um, mm-hmm. very famous um, Japanese re- or famous wrestler. Um, he he um, he's sort of the the mat based uh, kind of technical wrestler, definitely. Um, whereas Ricky Dozen, I should explain, was you know a bigger sort of guy, but also a mat based guy. Um, but more popular was this the second man that emerged in the years before Ricky Dozen's death, and that was it. Oh, can I guess? You can guess. Yes, I should. Mm-hmm. I should. Was it Giant Baba? <laughs> yes, it was Shohei <laughs> Giant Baba. <laughs> yes, good guess. Uh, look at that! Look at that knowledge. <laughs> yeah, um, and 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 one of the reasons you would have known that is because yes, Baba is another like an El Santo type figure that transcended you know, his sports transcended wrestling and to become a cultural icon, um, arguably maybe even more famous than Ricky Dozen. It's close. They're almost, they're definitely one, two, 
mm-hmm. in Japan as legendary Japanese wrestlers go. I was just aware that he wasn't just a wrestler, but that he was, you know, basically sort of the the head of his of his federation or whatnot. That yeah. Was, yes. Sorry. Yeah, that's the story. That yeah, I'm getting to that part. At oh, first, <laughs> the two of them actually debuted. Anoki and Baba debuted on the same show. Uh, in 1960, and um, so throughout the 60s, they were, um, they, they, especially Baba, who went to America um, and became a big star in the States, and that news, of course, came back to Japan, and that made you a legend. Basically, if you became famous in the States, um, that meant you were basically the greatest wrestler, or one of the greatest wrestlers, because it was a rare feat to do. Even Ricky Dozen didn't become famous um, outside of maybe uh, the old Los Angeles area or mm-hmm. this territory uh, as a wrestler. Um, Baba was, uh, you know, very famous. Anoki, um, on the other hand, he went to America in the mid-60s and never really rose above, like, a Carter. And also, he worked in the smaller, in smaller territories like Kansas City, um, tech, some of the Texas territories, and then Tennessee, Whereas Baba was main eventing in New York, L.A., St. Louis, the, the top uh, the top wrestling cities. Mm-hmm. So with that going on, Baba came back to Japan and was immediately like a huge star. Um, Inoki became a pretty significant star. And the two of them were a tag team in the 60s and early 70s known as the B.I. Cannon. Baba Inoki Cannon. Gotcha. Yes. <laughs> I would have got that. You just needed time. <laughs> so anyways, uh, they would face all the, the incoming Americans. And the trend continued, of course, after the Sharp Brothers in the early 50s. The trend for years was for all the big American stars to come into Japan and face, you know, first Ricky Dozen and then Baba and Inoki. Um, so that would include in the 60s guys like Freddie Blassie and Dick the Bruiser, uh, Fritz von Erich, Gene Kaniski, uh, basically a who's who of, of the top stars, Bruno Sammartino top stars of American wrestling at the time. And wrestling, of course, um, was very popular uh, on TV and in, in, in live in public. And uh, in the early 70s, um, Baba and Inoki got to the point where they they wanted sort of a bigger piece of the pie. They were huge stars, so they attempted a coup um, and to gain control of the JWA. And it failed. It was sort of sniffed out before they could fully um, get it going. And because I know immediately fired, um, but because Baba was so such a big star, they couldn't fire him. Otherwise, they'd, uh, they'd have no no stars to promote anymore. Mm-hmm. Baba stayed on. Anoki formed his own promotion because he had no choice. He was blacklisted from the top huh. um, group, and he formed what is known as the New Japan Pro Wrestling promotion, which today is the most. Uh, popular, most successful uh, promotion in Japan. Mm -hmm. Um, Baba, after about a year of staying in the JWA, finally, I guess, he, yeah, he um, got a deal with the TV station that carried the JWA to go with him, and he formed a new promotion called All Japan Pro Wrestling. Mm. This was the end of the JWA. They lost uh, Anoki, and then Baba left, formed his own promotion. Baba took all the top talent from the JWA hmm. to all Japan. And he also took the uh, NWA um, talent exchange, the American pipeline with him. So he had all the cards and the JWA folded 
And so now you had the two uh, promotions. You had All Japan Pro Wrestling and, and New Japan. And this is in 1972. So, so what was the what was the dynamic there? Like, it sounds like All Japan kind of kind of had a lot of weight, whereas New Japan was sort of the underdogs in this contest. Yeah, exactly true. All Japan basically continued the JWA's sort of role as the top promotion, mm-hmm. uh, whereas New Japan was, I believe they had they had TV. Um, yeah, of course they did, but they were a distant second at the beginning. They didn't have New Japan and Inoki didn't have the access to the American stars for one thing, which um, at that time was still the most important um, sort of thing to have was to bring in the Americans for main events. Mm-hmm. Inoki had to rely on sort of the uh, B-level uh, American guys, and also he basically, from the from the get-go, sort of decided to take New Japan wrestling in a different direction, whereas All Japan um, was based on sort of your traditional American style of wrestling, mm-hmm. um, or less. Um, New Japan went into the sort of the more realistic style, known as uh, shoot style um, or strong style, would be maybe another way of putting it, where Anoki's matches were uh, promoted more as legitimate contests, you know, that and Anoki began this gimmick around that time of, you know, that he was the world's greatest fighter, and that mm. into him having uh, staged or worked matches with, like, judo champions, and eventually um, Muhammad Ali, the great boxer, was brought in, and they had a match, uh, him and Anoki had a match. But that's um, another episode entirely. That's, uh, in more ways than one, that is <laughs> a big uh, future episode, potentially. Um, so, yeah, Anoki went with the, you know, the wrestling as as serious combat sport angle, and um, Baba stuck with the uh, traditional approach. And for most of the 70s, I think All Japan was on top. Then in the 80s, a big-time uh, talent war broke out, basically the equivalent of uh, WWF versus WCW in the 90s, where... Um, New Japan uh, raided some stars, most notably Abdul the Butcher. Um, he went... was Canadian. Yes, another Canadian. <laughs> another Canadian foreign menace. Yep. Big being... fat guy. Billed as being from the Sudan, but was actually from uh, Windsor, Ontario. Uh, and But he was the top heel for all Japan, and uh, Anoki raided him. And that was basically the start of a, a talent war that went on for years. Um and saw um, uh, New Japan actually take the lead eventually as the top promotion. And it kind of went back and forth for a long time. Mm-hmm. The two. Um, eventually, um, All Japan, their undoing was Baba dying, basically. In 19- well, that would do it, wouldn't it? Yeah, Baba not only was the top star, well, by the end, I mean, his days as a top star were by the but anyway, behind the scenes, he was, of course, the owner, and he was also the booker, the guy who who decided who won and lost the matches and, and you know, what matches were going to happen and all that. Mm-hmm. So he died. His wife inherited the company, and almost immediately there was big friction between her and the top talent. Um, 
which caused sort of a uh, basically a uh, repeat of history where um, the top star at that time in 1999, uh, a man we'll be looking at later, Mitsuharu Misawa, left um, because he couldn't get along with Baba's wife and took all the top talent with him, <laughs> formed um, uh, the pro- uh, promotion known as Pro Wrestling Noah. Uh, which the the Noah thing is symbolic, of course, of like uh, you know, no an arc, well, an arc with pairs of wrestlers fleeing from the flood of yeah. bad leadership. Yes, exactly. So uh, after that, all Japan, you know, still exists today, but it's a shell of its former self. Um, pro wrestling Noah actually was hugely popular, but it's also a shell of its former self, barely clinging for survival. Now they don't even have TV anymore. Um, and in the last 10 years or so, New Japan has sort of become the uh, WWE of Japan, finally, sort of the unquestioned sort of number one with, you know, a bunch of distant number twos. And that's as far as I understand, because um, I don't really follow modern Japan. Um, so I, I, I know bits and pieces, but, you know, that's just a basic mm-hmm. overview from what I've gathered. And, and that's where we stand today. So, of course, yeah, I, I've zipped through the history of J- Japanese wrestling in about 10 minutes there. Um, what else can I say? I mean, maybe uh, we'll go on now to the, the differences. Basically, uh, I guess I'll be looking at this from a historical standpoint, because like I said, again, I'm not totally sure what modern Japanese wrestling is like. But historically, ah, More history. Yeah. Like sort of, you know, the traditional Japanese wrestling is that it's focused more on the sporting side of things than American wrestling, it, well, especially is today. Um, so, you know, a, a, a Japanese wrestling match in, say, circa 1994, like the, the match um, we're going to discuss soon, mm-hmm. um, is closer to like a, you know, a boxing match or a or a modern ufc fight in the way that it's um presented right <clears throat> very much presented as like serious business between two mm-hmm. great athletes um fighting to be the best in the world right yes and that in a way that's sort of like the generalized um way that you could look at a lot of japanese wrestling over um uh, over its history that's not to say that there hasn't been, you know, characters and gimmicks and um, and more of the American style. Uh, like I said, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, um, JWA and then later All Japan was basically more or less um, doing the same things that American wrestling was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that was the sporting style because the NWA style, the National Wrestling Alliance American style was... Uh, in a lot of ways, um, heavy on the sporting style, whereas the New York style, the WWF style, was the the entertainment, the theatrics, the cartoon that came to dominate. You know. Yeah. You know, and and in a, in the minds of of many people, most people, when they think of pro wrestling, they think of what the WWE is, right? Whereas you know, the point of actually this podcast is to show you that there is different ways of doing wrestling. So there's that. That is like so. If you looked at you know a, a Japanese wrestling match, like I said, from circa 1994, and compared it to a WWF match from the same time, 
the the sort of more serious approach to the presentation is, I think, what would be maybe the most noticeable difference mm-hmm. between the two styles. Yeah. Um, traditionally, also, um, Japanese wrestling is not big on gimmick characters, at least the the Japanese themselves. Um, of course, in the you know 60s, 70s, 80s, you'd have the Americans come over, the, the gimmick characters from America come over. Mm-hmm. The Japanese themselves, and there's ex- exceptions, but for the most part, they're sort of just, you know, themselves in a lot of ways, you know, yeah. without like a fancy name or a costume or masks. Um, although, like I said, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, you know, um, the the gimmick characters aren't as important, nearly as important. Do you think that the uh, the best way to to point out some of these differences between Japanese and uh, and North American wrestling would be to talk about the matches? Because there's a lot of very specific things that you're talking about that that I see in examples from the matches. So. Yeah, for sure. I feel like if we started talking about the matches, we'd be able to bring up all these things that are that are distinct differences, all these cultural mm-hmm. differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll just maybe quickly end the the little little bit I was going to say that um, gimmick matches like cage matches um, and such, uh, lumberjack matches or whatever. That's unusual in Japan. That's another difference. Um, the interview style is, of course, uh, closer to a sports interview. You know, serious questions, no screaming and shouting. You know, <laughs> usually, um, and the crowd can be looked at as being a lot more subdued than a American crowd, North American crowd. But as we see in these matches that we're going to look at, the crowd can be just as heated and hot in, as an American or Canadian or North American crowd for sure, right? <laughs> well, as a sports crowd, right? Yeah, definitely as a sports crowd, basically, yeah. If you're watching a sports event and you get into it, yeah, it's very similar to that, yeah, for sure. Match one, Terry Funk versus Stan Hansen. So these two matches that we're going to look at, um, kind of, I I didn't choose them at random. Um, So I guess we'll go into the, the older of the two. The first one between two American wrestlers, uh, Stan Hansen and Terry Funk, and an interesting choice of a match to showcase Japanese cultural wrestling. Um, maybe. Um, another aspect to Japanese wrestling is the harder hitting, more violent style. Mm, and this is definitely a good match to show that off. And these two guys, Stan Hansen in particular, but Terry Funk also were you know, are looked at as, you know, amongst the most popular American wrestlers to ever wrestle in Japan. I mean, Hansen uh, got to a point in his career where he was spending the majority of his time in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and Terry Funk, for years, worked closely with the All Japan promotion in booking uh, foreign talent for BABA. And um, the time that this match happened, Funk was at the peak, I'd say, of his popularity in Japan, where he was just you know, amazingly popular. Um, uh, to I think there was cheerleaders in the crowd for him. You know? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't notice. I mean, there was a lot of sign activity. There were a lot of people flashing signs around. Yeah. Um, yeah so, anyways, 
uh, Funk is definitely the baby face in this match, and Hanson uh, definitely the heel. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, what did you think of this match, Mark? I loved it. I mean, the first thing that I noticed, of course, is that, as you said, it's two Americans going into a Japanese wrestling match. And not only are they Americans, but they are Stan the Lariat Hansen, who comes in with his cowboy hat. And they are, sorry, what was it? It was, is it like the, the, the raging Bronco or the, the galloping stallion? Yeah, I guess that's maybe a, ja- or a Japanese nickname for him, because I don't think. He was. It was the something stallion. Okay. Yeah, because that's not a nickname he, he's ever used. The in. bucking stallion, something like no. <laughs> Anyways, and and oh. this and the you know the, the 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 wonderful stallion Terry Funk. But anyway, yeah. So it, it's yeah the two Texans. Um, basically, I guess this had been a feud that had been going on for a while, um, where Hanson. Uh, he was from, uh, like I mentioned before, the talent war that was going on. Hansen was from New Japan originally, and uh, he was raided by Baba. Mm. Come to All Japan, and in his debut in All Japan, he showed up totally to the shock of the crowd who didn't know he was he had uh, crossed over. <laughs> Basically attacked uh, the Funks, um, Terry Funk and his older brother, Dory Funk Jr., in a match. Um, and that, start, that was his debut, was him attacking the Funks. And mm. then so that uh, was, I think, a year or two before this. Anyway, um, so that, that the background for this match is that, yes, these two wrestlers had been in a, a feud for for quite some time before this. Well, so that shows. That's definitely clear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the great, you know, examples of a grudge match, I think, mm-hmm. out there. So the first thing that I uh, I really started to think about... Uh, initially, when the wrestlers come down towards the ring at the beginning of this match, it's so crowded. It's so crowded and so claustrophobic. You know, it's not the huge, lavish, spread out arena that you tend to see in North American wrestling, where the wrestlers have a big, separate stage all of their own, and then they walk down unaccosted down a very broad aisle mm-hmm. and go into the ring. No, they have to actually go boxing style right through the crowd. And so there's people grabbing at them and pawing at their faces, and they have to have an entourage of, of like, ring assistants, like, helping them get down to the ring. And then once they get into the ring, there's people just, like, actively, like, sitting with their, with their hands, you know, right on the ring, you know, yeah. chins sitting on the, uh, on the turnstile. No, I'm, I'm turnstile. The apron. Yeah. Well, those, sitting in the apron. Yeah. Those are the young boys. Have you, do you know of the young boy phenomenon? Because this is, is another is thing. Is that a thing? Pardon me? Sorry. Uh, no, go on. The young boys. Well, this, this is another uh, thing that sort of separates uh, Japanese wrestling from American wrestling, is that the wrestlers that are in training that are, you know, um, working to become pro, pro wrestlers themselves, part of their training is to go ringside you know, during the matches, right, mm-hmm. and observe from there. Um, and each wrestler is sort of assigned, like, a stable of, of young guys that, you know, sort of follow them around. And it even extends outside the ring, outside the, the performance to in life where, you know, these young boys work as, like, they're basically their servants. Yeah. In real life, cooking and cleaning for them. <laughs> tied to, you know, like, tra- traditional Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. So 
for wrestling matches in Japan, you'll always see like a crowded uh, group of uh, of uh, young wrestlers, Japanese wrestlers outside the ring um, for every match because that's part of their training is to watch these matches. Hmm. Well, yeah, you know the uh, the the two wrestlers, Stan Hansen and uh, and Terry Funk, they get down to the ring and they get into the ring. And there's just people just just all around, you know, there isn't that really clear divide there. There wasn't, I think, a guardrail between them and the audience. So the audience is just sitting a few feet away, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, sitting in their chairs. People in the front row, you can see their faces very clearly and uh, and all very somber as well. I liked that. Everyone was very, you know, they were they were into it. There was cheering and there was yelling. But at the same time, there were a lot of people just sort of sitting in serious contemplation, just <laughs> observing the match. Yes. All right. Okay. What's going to happen here? Mm-hmm. And then there were the streamers. They're just yeah. chucking streamers and like confetti into the ring. And it's just like getting all over the wrestlers. It was so messy, you know, for <laughs> somebody with the sort of anal retentive compulsive habits that, that pursue them through life. You know, mm-hmm. I was looking at this thing and just being like, Oh my God, how are they going to wrestle in that? Yeah. It's, it's, the ring is covered in, in, in streamers and in, yeah. in paper. That's yeah. gross. Yeah. So. And that's a traditional, you know, mm-hmm. to a match is to, uh, to do that. I guess it comes probably from some other aspect of Japanese culture. Could be. Yeah. Uh, anyways, it was, yeah. it was, yeah, it was more like a, um, like a den brawl, you know? It was like the sort of thing that you would pay a seedy doorman and get led down into the basement of a club to see. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Because, yeah, it's a stiff... Oh, man, it's a stiff fight. Um, mm. Hansen was always known to be quite stiff, um, often blamed on his poor eyesight, that he couldn't, you know, judge how, you know, the distance between him and the wrestler or whatever. Oh. Explain yeah. to me what, uh, what stiff means. In okay. This Right. Stiff is a wrestling term meaning to almost literally, you know, instead of pulling, you know, your your shots or your punches and, you know, uh, you're basically almost really punching somebody or really hitting them. Um, And some and Japanese wrestling is that's a, a, a main part of it is the stiffness, whereas American wrestling traditionally is known about working what is known as working light and making it look good, but you're not really um, hurting anybody in the process, right? Yeah. You're, you're, yeah, you're, so it's, it's the opposite. Um, on one hand, I mean, it, it can look more realistic, the stiff style, but then on the other, it's, it's, you're really hurting somebody. And then the damage to the bodies in Japan can be quite significant. Uh, mm, I can, I can tell. Yeah. I mean, that was that was the big overwhelming aspect of this fight that I thought the fact that it it had very convincing realism and uh, and it really you know what I at first I I wasn't sure that this you know fight two Americans facing off in Japan I didn't think that was the best way to represent Japanese wrestling but at the same time this is such a brutal match. I mean, it really shows off, I guess, this stiff wrestling style that you're talking about. I mean, yeah. there are a bunch of spots where, I mean, good Lord. I mean, Terry Terry gives pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> he gives pretty well. But for the most part, he just gets absolutely brutalized. Stan is hammering away on Terry, and Terry's backing up, and he backs up into the ropes, and then he just slips through the ropes and just sort of 
and just sort of plummets down onto the apron and onto the ground. But it was great because you, you, you get used to the rules of how wrestling matches are supposed to work. You know what happens when somebody touches the ropes, you know? They either get hung up on them in one of the standard, typical textbook ways, or they bounce off, right? And it was so entertaining to see him just go butt-first between, like, the second and third rope and just sort of awkwardly fall through. It was mm-hmm. it was a great spot because it just sort of defied what we know about the hard and fast, very... <laughs> um, repetitive rules of wrestling it was something a little mm-hmm. bit different oh yeah yeah no it's these two guys especially terry funk i really he's one of my all-time favorites he does great spots yeah he's yeah no two matches of his i think are ever the same he's <laughs> you can watch and they're all good in in their own way mm-hmm. he's, he's always doing something just craziness um, yep brilliant at improvising yes yeah <laughs> so and of course this match really gets you know almost to the point of being disturbing um <laughs> yeah. in the end when he's being strangled ah! harry funk's being strangled by, by mm-hmm. and this and this is after some some terrible stuff there's there's one uh there's one shot when the brutality sort of begins stan hansen is starting to build up his heel heat and yeah. he's starting to take control of the match and he grabs terry and is like hitting his face into the turnbuckle and the camera angle was particularly close, so you get a really good shot of this, and he's not turning his face aside, and you're seeing that he's actually hitting the turnbuckle, so he's actually just slamming his face again and again into the pads. I mean, admittedly, it's padded, but it probably ain't padded all that much. And I'm pretty sure Funk's cut was a hard way cut, not a blade job. Yeah, at one point, uh, Terry starts bleeding all down his face. I didn't notice it until Stan stood up from some kind of grapple, and he was covered in blood all over his chest. Yeah, I was yeah. like, where's that coming from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's from Terry's face. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then just, you know, things like um, there's a knee drop to the head that Stan Hansen delivers that just is just unbelievably brutal. He knocks Terry down, and then he backs up, and then he runs at him, jumps into the air, and then drops his knee onto his head. And it's like he doesn't even support himself with his other leg. It looks like he just goes full on, you know, the whole weight of this, like, you know, 300-plus pound guy right down on Terry's head. It's it's astounding that uh, Funk's head even has, you know, a recognizable shape after that. (laughs) No, they must have been hurting. Ateria especially must have been hurting in the dressing room after that. <laughs> and, yeah, it's just a fantastic brawl. Um, yeah, very good brawl. Very good example of, of what it looks like when two of these kind of brawler-class wrestlers yeah. face off against each other and just yeah. rough it up a bit. Yeah, it was a total brawl. There was no pretense, really, to any wrestling um you know, technical wrestling. <laughs> it's just... I think there was a body slam. At some <laughs> yeah, point. Well, yeah, no, it's, it's a great match. It's um, actually, mm. I should say the date was a- uh, April 14th, 1983. And mm. yeah, it's on YouTube and I'll hook up the link and all that on the uh, WordPress site. And um, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, like you said, you know, um, of course, it's not a match involving someone who's actually Japanese, but it's very much representative of Japanese wrestling. So maybe that's, you know, that's a kind of an interesting thing that mm-hmm. it's two Americans 
having a Japanese style wrestling match, kind of. Anyway, it's a great match, and I thought, what the hell? Let's do yeah. that. <laughs> match two Mitsuharu versus Kawada. So we'll fast forward now to about 11 years later. Same promotion, actually, in that the first match, the Hanson Funk match, was from All Japan Pro Wrestling, Baba's promotion. And so fast forward 10 years later, uh, just over 10 years, 11 years later, and same promotion, All Japan Wrestling. But things had changed in the interim um, for various reasons, mostly because of the rise uh, in, in the intervening years of the WWF where um, most of the top American stars were locked up to contracts with either the WWF or WCW, um, the pipeline of talent to Japan dried up. And by the end of the 80s, you sort of saw the end, in a lot of ways, of the traditional American versus Japanese um, uh, fight, uh, feud, or match. Uh, mm-hmm. There were, still was, but the top stars from America didn't really uh, come anymore. Um, not with the regularity, regularity that they used to. So you saw the rise beginning in the 80s, mid-80s, but by the time the 90s um, were underway, you had definitely the Japanese versus Japanese match um, taking precedence and being the, the main event attraction. And the battle for, you know, basically um, who is the greatest uh, Japanese wrestler was sort of what the fans wanted to see. Mm-hmm. And so now we're in 1994, June the 3rd, 1994. The number itself, uh, 6394, is all you have to say in wrestling, hardcore <laughs> wrestling circles. It's that, you know, this match is that iconic. Um, often considered the greatest match of all time, you know, anywhere, you know, mm-hmm. world ever. Um, the uh, combatants are... And this is for the Triple Crown Championship, which was the top title in Japan, the top title in all Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, your champion is Mitsuhara Misawa, and the challenger is Toshiaki Kawada. And, um, yeah, so this is, in many ways, I guess you'd say the opposite of the previous match, but not necessarily. But this is, you know, your technical encounter, at least yes. at first. So, um, Moss, what, what are your thoughts on this? This was exhausting. <laughs> this, yeah. And not in a bad way. Either. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, this was... I, I looked at the YouTube clip that, uh, that, that Kelly showed me. 45 minutes long. And I was thinking, you know what? I'll watch it this morning with breakfast. Uh, I'm <laughs> probably not going to watch the whole thing. I'll skip through, right? I'll, I'll kind of... skim over the bits where they're just laying on the mat, you know, one guy's in a headlock and they're just grunting for 15 minutes trying to regain their breath, right? I mean, naturally, that's going to happen. Any any 30-minute-plus match, you know, there's going to be these long spells of just, oh, nothing's going on. Mm -hmm. No, not true. I watched the whole thing, and it was fantastic. There were appropriate pauses and gaps in the action, but nothing so long that you you started to get bored or you got the impression that the wrestlers were, you know, running out of breath. I mean, you got the impression that they were out of breath (laughs) because they had been so brutally, you know, damaged across this entire thing. But they kept up such an incredible level of energy. I was just astounded. Yeah, it's... um, And the matches at this time in Old Japan are very much... This is what they're known for. Um, Mm -hmm. Legendary. 
Um, this one has risen to the top above them all. But yeah, the style at the time became, uh, it was like a one-upsman game of, you know, uh, and I've seen it compared uh, on, on uh, one wrestling board, I guess it was the pro wrestling only board, how they describe all Japan matches as being like um, like a video game uh, or like a street fighter match where the only way to win is to have your opponent's health down to completely nothing, right? <laughs> yes, but, exactly. Yeah, because that's how it is. It's just mm. escalating one hard move after the next. I mean, it tells a story, of course. Um, the background story to this is that Misawa and Kawada were tag team partners for years. Mm. Um, and uh, actually, the match, uh, a legendary match, uh, Misawa was, um, uh, in his earlier years, wrestled as Tiger Mask, the second Tiger Mask. Mm. Um, so he wrestled under a mask. And the match where he took the mask off was a tag match where he, in the middle of the match, he commands Kawada to remove the mask. <laughs> so dramatically, Kawada removes the mask from him, and he it makes this unbelievably fiery comeback after <laughs> the mask is taken off. And that was it. And then he became uh, Masala. Like he went by his oh, that's incredible. That's a yeah. great way of doing it. Yeah, you could. Yeah, that's got to be on YouTube. You should be able to find that. Oh, so good. I mean, usually the mask mask is the source of the power but in this yeah case, or you lose it the mask the mask was holding him back yeah 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 exactly yeah. it's an inhibitor on his natural skill yeah you should see that gets great because the crowd just pops it's like such a surprise they never oh, expected it to happen yeah and under the mask for like five years at that point oh man so anyway they had this long uh, connection between the two of them mm-hmm. and masala eventually became the top guy about a couple years before i think he finally um won the triple crown championship um, in fact, I think it was from Stan Hansen that he, he finally um, won the, the big championship from. So this was, uh, we got to the point now where Kawada was, you know, the up-and-coming guy. Mm-hmm. And so this was the match between two, you know, former friends. I, I'm not sure of the whole history. I think by this time they'd sort of stopped teaming together. It didn't seem, the, the impression that I got when they both came down to the ring and the match started, just the reactions of the crowd, the way that they were being shot, the way that they were looking at each other, I got the impression that they were no longer, you know, like, like close, yeah. fast friends. But yeah. it was really interesting for me, not knowing the history between these wrestlers, to try to figure out kind of what their, what their standing was, who was the face and who was the heel, right? Yeah, and it was it was a very fascinating beginning of the match because they start out with that with that uh, wonderful kind of, you know, just tests of strength. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, just just little challenges against each other where they're sort of pacing around the ring and then they'll go up against each other. And and, uh, you know, Kawada wins the first basically wins the first tangle by yeah. just pushing Masawa back against the ropes, and then they just break up. That's it, right? No, no moves. Just sort of they grapple. He pushes them up against the ropes, and then they step back, and the crowd applauds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, nicely done. Yeah. You are stronger than him. It was, it was so good, so tantalizing, yeah. and then it was just little, little uh, clashes where they just come together. They grapple briefly. There's a there's a quick little exchange, and then they back off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the crowd, ooh. <laughs> My favorite bit was maybe two or three tangles in. They come together. They they, they break up. I think uh, Masao runs into the ropes. And Kawada goes for a big kick. And he kicks. But Masawa holds onto the ropes. 
and so Kawada kicks nothing but air. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and the crowd gives this great sort of, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot you know, of... Misawa just sort of, Misawa, you know, just kind of walks away confident. And, oh. and poor Kawada, like, I just, you know, like, oh, my God, he's lost. He's lost the whole match. Because yeah. he, 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 he belittled himself by, by missing that feint and kicking into the air and not hitting his opponent. Oh, right. <laughs> and it was just so rich with yeah. subtext it was so just uh, yeah it was no. wonderful yeah the storytelling is quite heavy yeah the basic story is that masawa is clearly a step above kawada right that's the underlying mm-hmm. sort of uh, theme of the match and mm-hmm. that yeah kawada is the one who has to be more aggressive you know yeah i and... got that impression because because yeah kawada would come on very strong but uh you know, initially when Kawada Kawada gets the upper hand first, mm-hmm. he starts he starts taking it to Misawa, throwing him around, knocks him out of the ring, that sort of thing. And uh, for the most part, the the fans are sort of cheering for Misawa to get back up. You know, they're yeah. they're 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 not necessarily booing Kawada. They don't really do any booing. They just do cheers no. and different kinds of cheers. Yeah, so they're they're rallying Misawa to get back up, to get back in the fight, and and. Kawada, the underdog, he he keeps it on him for a while, and then Misawa gets back in it, and he does it in a really strange way. I thought it reminded me of when you talked about the Bret Hart heel turn of him, of him sort of getting a bit whiny. It wasn't that Misawa got whiny or dishonorable or anything like that, but he's been beat down for, you know, five, maybe eight minutes or so, yeah. and then. Uh, he's standing up, Kawada kicks him, and Masawa just kicks him back like ten times, and just like, starts wailing on his leg, and it's just like, and just, <laughs> it's like, it's like when you said his mask got removed in that other, in that other yeah. match. It's like he suddenly just got fed up, and was just like, nope, nope, I'm not having it anymore. He just like yeah. snaps. And then he just wails away on, on uh, Kawada's leg, and then he starts working the leg, and the crowd totally goes against him and starts rooting for Kawada. Right. <laughs> and they just, they go silent. Yep. Like, you know, Masawa, you know, does some big move. He, he puts on a hold to, uh, to Kawada and the crowd, no. Nah. And then they start rallying for Kawada to get back up. Mm-hmm. And the match, they just go back and forth. And by the conclusion of the match, when it's just this incredible maelstrom of activity where both <laughs> yeah. people are jockeying for position and going back and forth. The crowd is doing the same thing and they're cheering for both of the contenders. Yeah. You know, come on, Kawada. No, no, come on. Yeah. I think by the end, the crowd wanted Kawada to win. Um, mm. And that's something that's debated over the years is did the, re- did the right man win this match? Um, and I, I don't know enough about the story at the time if you know it was if if kawada should have went over masola at that time but, well i don't know about the politics of it or the yeah thing, but i bought it within the context of the match it i i believed it it was yeah. one of those wonderful glorious matches where both of the contenders do the move that should end it and it doesn't yeah. right Yes. Masawa, Masawa pulls out this 
wonderful double underhook power bomb where he, yeah. you know, crashes down the tiger bomb. I think it was. Yeah, like. and I don't believe anybody had ever kicked out of that before. Yeah, and so and so he he nails him with the uh, with the tiger bomb, and Kawada kicks out, and then uh, Masawa gives him a double underhook um, German suplex, basically. Uh, you know mm-hmm. the. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tiger suplex, maybe, I think, isn't it? Tiger driver? It's all tiger stuff. One of them's the tiger driver. Tiger driver is how it is. Oh, God, I'm going to hear it on the on The, the tiger driver's dashboard. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, they they kicked out of each other's signature moves. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. And the final Big spot was kind of cringeworthy, um, where I'm assuming he just didn't uh, drop him the way he wanted to, because he drops... Masawa drops Kawada right on top of his head, essentially. It was pretty ugly. The tiger, yeah. Tiger Driver 91, I believe. That's the Tiger Driver 91. Okay, yeah. Yeah, the Tiger Driver 91. I love how he gives it a year. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that was the spirit of 91, just coming up and just and just pummeling Kawada into the mat with all yeah. the weight of that monumental uh, annual year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it was, it was grand. I yeah. loved how... As you pointed out, you you gave mention at the beginning that it started out as a very technical match, and then it sort of degraded, you know, yeah. into a brawl. And it totally was like early on there were some fantastic things, you know, mm. Masawa flipping over the ropes in a faint, flipping back, and then yeah, throwing. yeah, that was a good spot. Kawada, you know, classic spots, really fantastic, um, great maneuverability on behalf of both of them, wonderful. Wonderful timing and pacing. Yeah. It was like watching a movie. Oh yeah, there was no blown spots. No, everything I, I was, was bang on. The oh. camera would be in the right position, and then yeah. bam, it would happen with the right intensity, the right action. It was fast, but at the same time, you had time to process. And then by the end, they're they've they've each done their signature moves. You know, Kawada's done his his folding power bomb. I think twice to uh, Misawa. Misawa's done all of his double underhook moves, all these tiger moves left and right. Yep. And uh, and then they just start wailing on each other. And they're both just pulling out their biggest, heaviest moves. It's like this. The, it's like you said about a, like a fighting game, like a video game, right? Mm-hmm. At this point, they're just hammering heavy punch, heavy kick, heavy punch, <laughs> heavy kick, right? Yeah. <laughs> their moves, their their fingers are sore. They can't they can't do fun combinations anymore. So it's just heavy punch, heavy punch, heavy kick. And so yeah. Kawada is just rolling around the ring, doing his uh, doing his his rolling wheel kicks. I think it's uh, Abisagiri. Um, that is where he basically just does this sort of lazy looking somersault forward, and he just rolls, and his feet flip up and smack the guy in the face. Yeah. And it looks like it has such an impact, and he does this a couple times against Masawa, and Masawa is, is whipping around and doing his, um, his, like, tornado elbow, his rolling elbow, where he's spinning around and elbowing Kawada in the, uh, in the head, and it just, it just goes back and forth. Mm-hmm. And they just beat on each other until finally, finally, yeah, Masawa drops him on his head in the spirit of 91 and then gets the win. But it was great. Yeah. At the end, at the end last, uh, last little thing there is that, you know, again, they really hammer in that convincing realism of the match. You buy it because you get, like, the ring crew, yeah. like, runs into the <laughs> into the ring and they... Yeah patch up the wrestlers and they, yeah. they you know everyone's kind of you know cheering and holding up their hands it's not it's not the staged theatrical finish 
of a WWE match where, oh, good, the wrestler gets the win, and so he goes and stands on the turnbuckle, yeah, and then walks back out, you know, <laughs> yeah. all alone with the music playing. Yeah, I know. No, you get this rush of people crowding the ring. You get yeah. the sensation that they're really excited, mm-hmm. right? Like, they are shocked and, and amazed and impressed, and they, you know, are all pleased. They give them a big trophy. You don't yep. trophies in North American wrestling. That right? no, nope. That's a total Japanese thing. Yeah, yes, the biggest cool. match is always uh, you always get a trophy. Well, it was a big trophy too. That was yeah. like the size of a dude. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he couldn't even hold it up. Uh, he was so <laughs> spent at that point. Well, well, I should mention Misawa was a chain smoker uh, <laughs> in real life. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. I know how, how he was able to work. Yeah, considering matches. the energy, the fact that. You know, it's like you you see wrestling matches where somebody gets beat down and then they sort of struggle back up with sort of a slow push. Uh, you know, they yeah. left. Uh, yeah, I'm back. But whenever one of these guys would pop back from being beat down for eight minutes straight, it was always with like a quick hey and a and a jump and a drop kick and then they're and then they're whipping around and they're running around the ring and it's and it's just like suddenly they've got like two hundred percent. Yeah, going on. It's the fighting spirit. Uh, Absolutely, that's what it's known as. And both of them were were battered. I, I mean, the most convincing blood that I've ever seen in wrestling matches was in this match because it wasn't just coming out of the of the the eyebrow or the forehead. You know, yeah. <laughs> it was Masawa had a bloody ear <laughs> after he got kicked in the ear a couple times. Yeah. He falls over and he's like holding his face and then he gets up and there's blood coming out of his left ear. Yep. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Oh my god, that's unpleasant. Yeah, no, he didn't blade his ear. Yeah, no, that was legit. Yeah. 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 And and Kawada Kawada had a bloody nose by the end as well. Yeah, yeah. It was all yeah, it just uh, legit hard way blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, just even discussing this match is it's like watching it, it's uh, exhausting. Um Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's 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 Japanese wrestling in a nutshell. Um, you know, uh, it's it's different. It's it's exciting. It's um, just a, you know another way of looking at wrestling. And um, yeah, I, I I I love it just as much as I love uh, North American wrestling. It's definitely an amazing spectacle. I mean, I got more excited about this match than I have about. An, uh, an American wrestling match in in a long time. I mean, it was this was like watching. What am I trying to say? This was like watching a really good, well done action movie, as opposed to watching like Supernatural on television. You know, like it was it was it was totally a different league. Oh yeah. The North American wrestling is entertaining in sort of. Uh, uh, a kind of cute sort of hokey way in some, in some ways. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not full of the same surprises. It's not full of the same intensity, but maybe it is a little bit safer. It's safer. Uh, there's some, sometimes a match will hit these, a North American match or a WWE match will hit the highs of a, a Japanese match. As far mm-hmm. as the intensity goes, um, Bret Hart would have been in the 90s sort of the, almost the, you know, 
Japanese wrestler in American clothing mm-hmm. in, in, at the time. Uh, but even then, I mean, Brett's famous for being, you know, totally light and, you know, having, he takes pride or he took pride in his wrestling looking legit, but being totally light and not yeah. stiff in the slightest bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and last year there was a match between John Cena and Brock Lesnar that was stiff as all hell and quite a war. And if you can track that down, you should check it out because it's pretty cool. Um, but for the most part, yeah, it's, it's, it's totally different. It's a different league. Yeah, it's just different, but. We're looking at something totally different. Apples and oranges, basically. Apples and oranges, Kelly. Mm-hmm. Well, Kelly, thank you very much for taking us on that fantastically detailed exploration of Japanese wrestling, wrestling in Japan. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Nihon. Nihon in, in Japanese. That's what they call Japan. It's Nihon. Oh, yes. Oh, that's how you say it. <laughs> Nihon, yes. Absolutely. Okay, okay. I, okay. <laughs> so, so... Let's dom- exit now before we get uh, any further. So, uh, domo arigato. Yes. Domo arigato. Mr. Mm-hmm. Roboto. No, I wasn't, I wasn't going to do that bit. <laughs> I'm going to edit that in. I'm going to put in the song at the end. <laughs> <laughs> The song isn't even in Japanese. All right. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Yes. Um, thanks for listening, guys. As, uh, as usual, you can, uh, you can contact us at uh, fringescholars at gmail.com or, uh, or find us on Twitter at fringescholars or Facebook or God, we're just friggin' everywhere. I didn't do Google Plus for this podcast. I did Google Plus for my other podcast. Quickly gave up on that. I just don't. I just don't see the point. Okay, I don't even know what that is. So okay. And that is why I didn't do it, Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> and the WordPress site, uh, remember the WordPress site. Fringescholars.wordpress.com mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, of course, will be chock full of information, all kinds of fantastic supplements to this. And, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Till next time. We, we are, are the Fringe, Fringe Scholars. Scholars. This episode is now over.